Thank you for listening to Kazda EdCast, where we explore issues and ideas of K-12 education and speak with teachers and administrators about their experiences serving the needs of students in our region. All right, so welcome to another Kazda EdCast. Today we're going to be exploring some principles of instructional design with Dr. Mike Piccarillo, our executive director, and Mike Piper, our instructional design faculty member who is uh, leading our effort to develop this service. So thank you guys for joining me today. Um, and uh, let's start off with a question about what, what does engaged learning look like from an instructor's perspective in the classroom? What are you looking for when, you're, when you talk about engagement? Uh, you know, when I, if I'm observing instruction or if I'm the person who's instructing, um, once I have an understanding of the learning target, the learning focus for the work that that teacher and students are doing, I, I'm looking for what the evidence is that the, the teacher ultimately has in mind for students to express their thinking. And whether that's through class discussion, whether it's through a quick write that they're having somebody work on for a minute to two minutes, whatever it is, then you know that evidence is the best indicator that you have engagement. Um, there's a difference between cognitive engagement and behavioral engagement. And as teachers, we know when, when kids are practiced at appearing and looking the part in class, they lean forward, they have eye gaze that is in your general direction, maybe they've got a pen in hand or their fingers are hovering over a keyboard. Um, their mind, however, could be just about anywhere. And we also know that there are students who lean back and maybe tap the eraser end of a pencil and are looking out a window and you don't think you have them and then you look for evidence and it's there robustly. They've been tracking you, they are thoughtful, they are fully engaged, and now you're trying to get ways to elicit what's happening in terms of their thinking. So I, I tend to key in on what evidence uh, the teacher is asking for uh, that shows and allows students to express their cognitive engagement. Yeah, and I, and I think that I agree with Mike, and I also think that teachers um, you know, having been a teacher myself uh, early on in my career, that oftentimes we would get fooled by the mask that students can wear in the classroom and judge whether or not students were learning based on what we saw observationally, you know, in a very um, really kind of distant sense from it, not really getting down into the, you know, what was really going on. And I think that, you know, what I would look for and what I look for in my classroom, and what I would look for as a principal um, or a uh, assistant superintendent or a superintendent would be the students not only interacting with the content, but also making something of the content you know, like taking it to that next level. So not just collaborating, i.e. talking about the content, but taking it to another level. And, and that requires them to have the, them to have a focus that's provided by the teacher that typically comes through, you know, meaningful, essential types of questions that, um, that would be a part of the task that a teacher would assign you know, within this particular lesson. So, you know, I think that it's critically important that the students know upfront, what is it that we're trying to learn? And then, you know, also how am I, how do I know that I've learned this, right? So um, what are we trying to get from this particular um, interaction? And uh, students should be able to reflect on that, not just the teacher. So you have to be able to answer that question, uh, why are we learning this? Yes, absolutely. So teachers end up having to be masters of relevance. And, and, and Jerome, that, that gets to all of the, the work prior that, that really sets the stage for engagement. And, and teachers, they, they not 
only need to be masters of the content, but they need to be extremely knowledgeable about their students and the lives their students are living. And the more that they come to learn about and understand their kids, the clearer the picture becomes of those things about the lives their students are living that are relevant, that would be open to and, and curious about aspects of the content and the skill work that you're ready to give them. So, you know, there, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of work that, that doesn't just happen prior, but it's always ongoing. Definitely, it's important that instructors understand that there really is no end point. It's, it's a continuum, you know, and the kids need to understand that as well, that learning is a continuum. So can you guys, you know, each of you talk about a lesson that you taught uh, when you were in the classroom that consistently engaged students? And, you know, how did you think about its construction? Um, were you intentional about promoting engagement at that point in your career? Or was this just something that kind of happened organically? And then maybe you realized what the pieces of the puzzle were later on? Just maybe, you know, give a little window into uh, maybe like a formative kind of experience for you as an educator with dealing with engagement. Well, I, I so I taught for 10 years. And I think there were times when I thought that I was pretty good. But then when I look back on my career and I look back on those 10 years, I think I had the right ideas. I think I did some things well, but I also think that I didn't really follow through on some of the practices in the way that I could have. And so, you know, I, I tried to be engaging, but I, I don't know that I always was, but one, particular type of lesson, I, I won't say a specific lesson per se, but a type of lesson that I, a strategy that I picked up along the way that I used was the Socratic Forum. And, you know, uh, the Socratic Forum, I, I always felt, and it always seemed to work. And, and the key thing about that was really kind of setting it up was the hard part of it, was the, was the difficult work was really modeling for the students and practicing with them the whole process that we were going to go through that ultimately led to a lesson in which I did very little on my part other than facilitate the actual discussion um, from a very outside point of view and perspective, but and it really allowed the students to engage based on a set of, of ground rules. And, you know, and I would ultimately assess them as they were going through the process and they knew what that assessment was up front and they could gauge their own progress if they, if they wanted to, because that was a part of it. And then in the end, probably the most helpful piece was the debriefing aspect of it and really talking about, you know, what went well, what didn't go well. But what I loved about it was that the students really, they owned the discussion and every discussion, I could have five classes and we could be discussing the exact same topic and the discussion would go in five totally different directions. And I always found that to be great. And even though it went in five totally different directions, the key ideas were still there because that was, you know, you planned it that way. You, you seeded it so that they had to address those, but they could take it in so many different directions from there and, uh, and you could bring in relevance to things that were going on. I was a social studies teacher, so you could bring relevance to things that were going on in the world today, things that were going on in the country today, things that were going on in, in their community today. And so there was that relevance piece there. And I always felt that, although I think sometimes, um, teachers who were not thinking the same way about instruction as I was, maybe felt that there was a, a lack of rigor I always felt that the rigor was really was kind of inherent in the process and that the kids actually made it more rigorous than it would have been if I had just presented that information to them. So I think the rigor was built in by the engagement of the students and by their 
willingness to, to take the discussion in a variety of different directions that I would never have thought of on my own. So, you know, I, I, always, I always felt that that was important. And then I think the other piece of it was I always felt like I didn't have to worry about standards because the standards were already embedded in it. And the assessment, whether it was a standardized assessment in the end or an assessment that I provided, I always found that the students always really did well on either type of assessment because of the depth of learning that took place and the depth of understanding and connection with the, the content um, and also the skills associated with that type of lesson. So, you know, that to me was always a, a great lesson. And in fact, uh, early in my career, I used it a number of different times because I moved, I moved to different uh, schools and districts early in my teaching career. So I had to like re-engage the tenure process. And I would always use that as the one that I would uh, have my principal come in and observe me on and always got great, great reviews on that one. So apparently somebody else thought it was really good too. Um, but I, I, always, I always look back fondly on the Socratic forum process. You know, I, I, would, I would dovetail into what Mike was talking about. You know, you, that, the Socratic seminar, it, it works, but it's a, it's a, a lot of work ahead of time. And I would gauge, I would guess that, Mike, you probably had built some strong relationships with those students and they felt safe enough to conduct a conversation where questions were the drivers. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of time with cooperative learning types of, of activities and teaching them how to operate within that environment. And I think that was always the thing that I tried to stress when I became a principal uh, and instructional leader was, listen, you can't put kids in groups unless you teach them how to operate in groups in a productive manner. Yeah. Otherwise, the result you're going to get is what you would expect. A high-level student in the group is going to dominate. The kids who, you know, are are less socially um, up out front and who tend to be more reserved are going to just sit back and let the high-level student take hold of it. And you know, it's just not it's not going to be productive for everybody. And in the end, the person who did all the work will say, "I did all the work," and the other kids will say, "You know, will will have not really gotten much out of it." So you have to really teach kids how to operate in that environment. And so I always went from day one, um, my philosophy was don't open up the textbook until at least halfway through the first full week of school, because I wanted to teach them skills, teach them ways of interacting, uh, ways of engaging that were going to be beneficial throughout the school year before we got into any content. You know, that... It reminds us that, you know, when we hear so much right now about the importance of social emotional learning, the thing that often happens in educational circles is, uh, you know, a product or a package will come out that will address social emotional skills. And you can check that item off your list of to do's as, as an instructional leader. But social emotional learning has and has always been embedded and a part of every learning experience and might those collaborative skills that you're teaching students before a socratic seminar can be successful you and i both know they're rich with social emotional intellectual collaborative skills right. and there's a self-awareness and another awareness that's being modeled and, and 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 acquired by students in order to make those conversations successful Definitely. you know i i think a lot about uh, an experience I had early on in my career. And if, if you would allow me, I just share anecdotally as an illustration, you know, kind of a, a hallmark moment for me as a teacher. And it happened a couple of times in my career. After teaching for two years, I had a local um, educator performer come and his name was Sky McKenzie. And Sky, um, he would, he would uh, do reenactments and impersonations of historical figures. He would do storytelling. Um, he, he came into our school one time as Teddy Roosevelt, and it was magnificent. And uh, he spoke to our team of 120 kids in, in our double room, and you could hear a pin drop. Um, 
and he just spoke to them as Teddy. And it was just, it was brilliant. And afterwards, he asked for the English teacher on the team. And that conversation was, hey, I also have this Shakespeare program where um, we do Shakespeare in schools. I'm looking for somebody who'd be willing to work with kids on a scene. Uh, you pick it, the kids pick it with you, and um, I help you with it. And then we have a big festival, and you guys come down to uh, the egg and join everybody else from all these other area schools. And BOCES will uh, help you with the payment of it because it's a service through BOCES. And uh, um, I just need you to, to work with the kids and to help direct them. And I, I panicked. And I said, I, I, I took a Shakespeare course in college. Uh, I didn't tell them how much I, I really didn't enjoy that course. <laughs> but I have no experience. I'm not an actor. I can't do He's like, that's oh, okay. Shakespeare's a contact sport, brother. You, don't you worry about it. Um, well, I, I, I don't understand Elizabethan English all that well. Perfect. I love it when people come to it fresh. So every answer, every concern, he was just like, that's excellent. That's so perfect. You are absolutely who we need. That, for the next five years, became a standard of the work that, that I did with eighth graders. And we just loved it. Couldn't wait for it. I moved to the high school and... It took me a couple of years before I realized what I was missing, and I was missing that experience. So I decided to write a course up on Shakespeare, and I did. And I was so upset and dissatisfied with my course design because it looked exactly like my college course did during my undergraduate studies. We read Shakespeare. We showed up in a large group room. It was like a game show. No, Romeo and Juliet, Act 3, Scene 1. Is Juliet upset at the nurse? Is Juliet sad about something? Anyone? And I just slunk down in my chair, you know, and, and waited my time out. It wasn't until, um, you know, I was a middle school teacher before I, I remembered, oh, my gosh. So uh, I had a really talented supervisor who said to me, um, you know what you need to do? You need to go to Lenox, Massachusetts. Shakespeare and Company is located there, and they do a four-day workshop over the summer. And I think it would, it would give you all sorts of ideas for what this course could be. I did. It was a combination of educators, about 15 of us, about three professional actors, and in that cohort of 18 people, we spent four days. And we worked from eight to three, um, prior to it, we were told we had to memorize 15 to 20 lines of any Shakespearean speech. And the first day when we all assembled, uh, the teachers identified each other. And in conversations, they also identified who the three professional actors were. Um, they, of course, would be wonderful and we would be terrible. Um, they're going to be better at this. And when do you think they're going to make us do our 15 to 20 lines that we memorized? And the panic around those lines lasted all day the first day and no mention from our instructors about the speech none we did all sorts of exercises had a blast we finished day one nothing day two same thing um, no mention of it people were panicked during lunch breaks they were clustering around um, it wasn't until after lunch on day three that we went through and uh, all of us, Kevin Coleman was the educational director there, brilliant, wonderful teacher and actor. He, he had to stand up one by one on stage and read our lines and said, please don't clap in between. And we did like a row of dominoes, give our speeches, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. And afterwards he said, okay, anybody want to just kind of say how that felt? And there was a waterfall of reactions. It was, by and large, without exception, awful. And he said, how about that? And how long have you been worrying? Well, we've been worrying for, you know, and yeah, yeah. You, you're, you're awful, Kevin. You didn't say anything about when this was going to happen. No, I didn't. No, I kind of lost track of it. It was obviously more important to you than it was to me. But we've done it now. And you didn't like it. And I didn't even grade you. And yet, when you go back to your classrooms, you're gonna make your kids stand up in front of all of their peers like I did to you. And you're gonna grade them. And I'm gonna ask you right now, stop. 
we had a wonderful discussion afterwards about risk-taking, about safety. And I shared with him, I, I'm designing a course and, and, and I hate my design. And he said, well, do you do Shakespeare right now? I said, Hamlet. Hamlet, oh my gosh, how do you do Hamlet? How much time? Do you spend like a, a week on it? I said, I, we spend eight weeks on it. Eight weeks on Hamlet. So you probably like do a full production. No. Well, you probably have kids read parts in class and enact them. You probably have them do like, you put them in scene groups, right? No. So what do you have them do? Well, we, I assign reading and we discuss it the next day. And he said, this sounds a lot like that college course you took. And I looked at him and I said, it does. <laughs> so then he said, okay, let's just review. Shakespeare wrote plays. He was referred to as a playwright. He enacted those plays with players in a playhouse. Why on earth would you design a course where kids couldn't play Shakespeare? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, before you do that, you need to make your space safe for the risk-taking that is required to open yourself up and imagine the character Shakespeare has written. How do we start every day? I said, we circle up, we do a check-in. And he nodded silently and smiled at me. And I said, okay. And that began a practice that was the centerpiece of that course, which became a performance-based course. And I had students in that class who represented all of the tracks of learning that our school at that time employed. And these are kids that hadn't been in the same classroom with each other since they were in elementary school. And I made it very clear what we were after. I love Shakespeare. And I, I wanna help you discover Shakespeare and your love for Shakespeare. And the only way I know how to do that is to let you play and imagine Shakespeare's characters and stories. And that became our focus from the beginning. The success criteria were clear, but we began every class with a check-in. It took us about 15 minutes of an 85-minute class. And that 15 minutes made everything else possible. Kids had scene groups and I, we, we visited our elementary schools, our middle school, we performed nonstop everywhere we could. And they had a real purpose for what it was they were going to use with their understanding of their characters and the story that scene was gonna tell. And I had very little work to do to get people to focus because I would just write our performance dates on the board. And the calendar does not lie and I cannot stop the spinning of the globe. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to happen, people. And they were seniors uh, in many cases with a few juniors. And there's nothing like uh, the challenge of galvanizing seniors in their final semester of high school. But it worked. Well, it, it makes me think that, you know, a lot of us at the high school, when we moved, you, you were at the middle level and you went to the high school level. And, and, that was my career path as well. And at the middle level, I felt like I could do anything because mm -hmm. I wasn't preparing them for college at the middle level. I was preparing them for high school. But then when you get to the high school, you're, you, you get fed this story that you're preparing them for college. But, but isn't it possible that you can do what you did and also prepare them for college at the same time yeah. <laughs> and, and not, have to go, not have to create a course that mimics a college course? Oh, yeah, I know, and you know, <laughs> the the unintended learning, you know, that I couldn't really, I couldn't, I couldn't take credit for, um, that happened as a result of that. I had a brilliant student um, in our final check-in of of a semester. Uh, you know, she, uh, we had grown pretty close uh, over the course of that semester, and you know, she said, "I, I need to confess something." And she turned and she faced one of her scene partners and she said, you know, um, you and I, I, I count you as probably my dearest friend right now. But, you know, the truth is, this is the first time we've been in a class together since fifth grade. And um, 
we were in different houses in middle school. And then when we got to high school, you're just, you know, I was in honors and AP classes and uh, I would pass you in the hall and I could see who you were hanging out with. And I made some assumptions about you that I'm really not proud of. So when we got in this class and you were in my scene, here's what I thought. And I'm, I'm ashamed of it. I thought I was going to have to carry you. I, I, I knew that you weren't um, in honors classes. You weren't in AP classes. I thought I was smarter than you. And she said, um, I'm, I was humbled by the fact that I was afraid to play the part of Katrina and do the crazy things she has to do. And you made it easy for me because you made me laugh. You just got me laughing and you are so silly and you don't care about being silly, but here's what I understand. You understand people better than I do. And you understood why I couldn't open up and then you made it easy for me. And so I did. I couldn't have done that scene without you. And yet here's how I thought at the beginning of this semester. I was ignorant and you were wise and patient. Thank you. So I would love to say, nope, that is exactly my learning target for today's class. Uh, you're the success criteria that led us toward that destination. And that would be just a bunch of BS. But the, the challenge and the rigor of the work, the safety and the community class had created together made that kind of learning possible. And to your point, Mike, you know, when you're in high school, we always feel like we've got to ready them for college and the real world and life beyond high school. I couldn't imagine a better revelation for a young person to make all on her own than that one. And understanding the, and learning the ability to appreciate another person's strengths, especially when they differ from you. I, um, can you guys talk a little bit about the relationship between engagement and rigor? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I have a, a, a dear friend who is a, a teacher uh, in Western New York and was the New York State Teacher of the Year back in 2007, 2008. And his name is Rich Anyabeni. Um, and Rich is a chemistry teacher. And one of the things that he said he did and still does uh, to this day uh, in his 32nd year of teaching um, he begins in September with a letter to his students. And this letter basically just reveals who he is, who he cares about, who's important in his life, um, things he loves, etc. And it ends with an invitation for them to write a letter back. And that letter is so important, he gives class time. And it's all week, that first week of school. And he has small group discussions and then they, they spend a considerable amount of time writing their letters and then he reads them. And those letters become the bedrock of his understanding of who his students have been and are and want to be. And he uses that to connect again and again in broader and deeper ways with each of his kids throughout the school year. And he said, in Regents Chemistry, it turns out this is really important. That week I spend in September buys me focus and engagement in March and April and May when it is hard and super important so I can get them ready for June. Yeah. And, and I think that's the connection between engagement and rigor and the importance of relationships as that starting point for engagement. But once you have engagement, Rigor becomes more and more possible because he's asking kids to do things they don't believe they know how to, that they, they intellectually can or are capable of. So that would be my, my way of illustrating that connection. Uh, that's, a, that's a great example. And the, the one that I, the story I always tell related to this question is I had moved to the high school um, in the same district after four years at the middle level and a new principal came in January, around January, December, January of, of my first year at the high school. And I had brought over with me a lot of the same strategies that I'd use at the middle level. 
because I was like, if I if it's engaging at that level, I, I can engage kids at the high school level in the same way. And there were only two social studies teachers, me and another uh, social studies teacher at the high school level. At the middle school, I was the only social studies teacher. So I kind of had full reign over what I did. The other social studies teacher was more traditional, um, more of a stand and deliver, give a lot of notes, quizzes, things of that nature. And I, I just was much more uh, thematic and project-based and you know, really looking to make bigger picture connections with the kids, with the content. And the principal came in and he came to my room and he said, and we were, we were tracked, by the way. We, were, we had a non-regents class, so the RCT kids and the regents class. And he came to me and he said, I'd like all of your kids to take the Regents exam at the end of the year. And I said to him, sure, that's fine. Because I said to him, quite honestly, the way I'm teaching the RCT kids and the Regents kids really isn't very much different. The only difference is the entry points for you know, access to the content. But the end result, the end game is the same thing. I'm, I'm looking for rigor and I'm, I'm looking for kids to be engaged and I'm looking for them to be able to demonstrate that they have, you know, some, they have developed higher order thinking related to this content. And the interesting thing was he went to the other social studies teacher and asked her to do the same thing. And she said, no, she refused <laughs> to do it. In the end, I never worried about the Regents exam. Uh, I never worried about the PET exam that we had back in the day. I never, at the middle level, I never worried about the standardized exams. The, the interesting part was that at the end of that school year, uh, my students did as well, if not better than the teacher who was teaching segregated classes, essentially, RCT versus Regents sections. And my kids were all taking the Regents exam and my, our scores were just as good, if not better, than, than the kids who were just in the region section for the other teacher. But the, the thing that really made me feel good about the work was I had two students who were special education students, and they only had a resource. There was no other support back then. Um, and that school had very, you know, very little um, resources available. So they had a, a resource room, and that was it. And these two young men came to me after the they took the Regents exam and passed and thanked me for allowing them to take the exam. And I said to them, you do not need to thank me. You had a right to take that exam. It was my responsibility to give you that access and opportunity to take that exam and to, and to help prepare you for it. And that's always stuck with me is, you know, to me, rigor, if it's engaging, the rigor is built in. That's, that's how I feel. If it's engaging, the rigor is built in. You, you, you don't have to sit there and try to measure how much rigor is in the, the work that you're doing and the work that the kids are doing if it's engaging work. If it's meaningful, engaging, relevant work, you don't have to worry about rigor. You've lit the fire <laughs> in them and, uh, and it's burning, yeah. yeah. So that takes us to our next question. And uh, so how do we ensure that our instructional design engages all learners from our most challenged students to our students who are most ready to be challenged? I hear in your question, Jerome, the necessity of, of understanding your kids um, as individual learners as well as you possibly can. And that often comes in conversation with colleagues who share those kids um, so that we broaden and deepen our understanding of what their strengths are. Because when you can remind a learner of what they're good at, and then you can show them the utility of that strength in getting good at this next skill set, there's a confidence then to make attempt. And then we just have to honor the fact that when we're asking kids to stretch, to, to do difficult work, work they've failed at, in many cases, year after year after year, that we have to honor their courage and fortitude in making yet another attempt at that learning. We take care of them when it isn't as successful as they might hope. You know, we remember FAIL is the acronym for first attempt at learning, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
first attempt in learning and and that you know that failure is our indicator it's going to tell us a whole bunch of stuff and we have to mine it for new information and we use those pieces to build the next attempt so you know i i feel like we keep that in mind for our kids who are struggling and we also understand very clearly our kids who are most ready for challenge and what it is that lights them up what they don't need to know so we don't waste their time and how we can simultaneously let them pursue the same kind of content more deeply more broadly uh, with its connection to a whole bunch of other things so that we're feeding their mind their interest and as well as somebody who doesn't need such a robust set of expectations and if we keep those edges in mind everybody in between is going to be captured i i think also to add pre-assessing students you know getting to getting an understanding of where they're at their readiness level i think is really important um whenever you're doing any activity regardless of what the activity is i think you should have some sense of where they're coming from in terms of not only their knowledge, but their, own, their personal experience with the particular content that you're, and skills that you're trying to ultimately teach. I think that's really important. I think, th and part of that is self-assessment as well. I, I don't think we, we give students enough credit to be introspective and to understand themselves as learners. And I think we need to, we need to, to give them more credit and, and feel a little bit more confident in that, that information. I know it's qualitative and we tend to want to be quantitative about data, but I really feel qualitative data is really, if, if, if you're mining the data correctly, it's really, really powerful stuff. So I think that those are, are um, key pieces. And I, and I also would want to share that your colleagues are great sources of understanding of students, for example, of, of students you're working with and that they're probably working with. For example, I remember, um, you know, when I was teaching at the high school level and I had some students who were coming out of a self-contained classroom. And sometimes they would come with a, a teaching assistant or aide and sometimes they, they wouldn't. And it was interesting because the, the culture of the, of the school district and the culture of the school at that time was kind of like, um, you were the gatekeeper to whether or not students came were allowed to come out of their self-contained classrooms and and take your class so to speak or audit your class whatever level of of participation which i thought was totally ridiculous i was like listen if this if this is going to benefit this child they should be in my classroom and then it's up to me to adapt and and you know figure out what's going to work best for this child so they can learn at the highest possible level. And I remember this one young man, he could write, but speaking was just, you know, a stretch for him. And I basically said, worked with his teacher, and I said, listen, I'm not going to grade him on the speaking part of this. I want him to get up and do the speaking part because I think it'd be good for him as an experience. And it would be good for the other kids in the classroom as well to understand that even though you struggle with it, you can get up in front of a group of people and you can be a part of a team and you can share your, your learning in your way. I said, I'm going to just grade him on the written part because I, because I know the writing, his writing is really actually in some respects far superior to a lot of his classmates, but he's going to struggle with the, with the speaking part. But I wanted them to experience it. And, I, and I'll tell you, he got up there and he did his speaking part. And I, I mean, he really worked at it. And he, I, I think he did the best he could possibly do. And he felt really good about that. And I felt like, you know what, the entry point for him in terms of this work was the written part. The speaking part was important for him as a person. But as, as terms of assessment, I didn't really feel like the assessment aspect of that was really relevant for him. It, it, it was unnecessary, I guess, is my point. You don't have to assess everything. Um, just because you, you say that you're going to assess an assignment or a task for the written and for an oral part of it, does that necessarily mean you have to assess all kids the same way in the, in the context of those two realms? I don't think so. And so 
and I didn't. And, and I, I felt like it was a really good experience when I look back on it for him and for me and for the other kids in the classroom. You know, moving away from the, your classroom experience and thinking about this more at a systems level, why do you think that engagement as a, as a cornerstone of teaching is such a powerful lever for instructional improvement at, at the building level? I, in my work with teachers, Jerome, I, again and again, I'm, I, it, it's so important to the teachers that I speak with because they see the direct correlation between engagement and achievement. And, and they want nothing other than for their students to see the potential in the content or in the skill set that they're, they're working with kids on. Uh, as, as much as they as teachers feel it. And, and so um, they'll, they'll do just about anything. And the inventiveness, the innovativeness of practice is so deeply inspiring. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, I don't have to convince anybody of the importance of engagement who's done a minute's worth of instruction. They, they want their kids with them. And they want their kids running alongside and then getting out in front. Um, so you know, the, the, the tools that promote it, sometimes uh, it's not always possible for us as a teacher in the moment to see what would have worked, what would have been nice uh, to consider another option or to not give up on a strategy they use just yet. Let's see if we can tweak it just a little bit or employ it next time with a little bit more fidelity. Um, so it's, it's helpful to be able to, to support teachers I, you know, I, I, we don't have to reinvent the wheel about the importance of engagement. And the other piece is there is a remarkable level of social emotional intelligence that the best teachers have developed over time. And some young teachers are just brilliant in this regard. They come with so much in, in terms of social emotional intelligence that it's stunning. And I, uh, I, I think, how dare you be this good so soon? Um, but that's the piece that I find is so helpful in promoting engagement with young people. Uh, those of us who are teaching know that on one day, you get this student um, who interacts with you and others the way you're used to, and the next day, she is an entirely different person. <laughs> and this happens for a whole host of reasons that are attributed to developmental concerns and and social emotional personal concerns and challenges our kids are dealing with um, in the moment as a teacher our response to students inability to engage on a particular day inability to be decent toward themselves or their peers is a make or break kind of interaction and uh, when we're good at it we really forget about it because it worked and we moved and, and, and the child moved with us and we're okay. When we're not so good at it, uh, things fall apart and teachers by and large persecute themselves for those failures uh, endlessly. So there are two pieces of this as an administrator that I always keep in mind that, that teachers learn to forgive themselves every single day for what didn't go right and what didn't go well. Um, that they honor the kinds of lessons so hardly learned, they are so brutal to learn as a teacher, about the kind of emotional care and safety our kids require and how we provide it as the adults in the room. But we learn things that you can't learn any other way. And that social emotional learning lays the groundwork for the kind of engagement we really need, the kind that directly correlates with achievement. Whereas in Mike's case, you know, you've got kids who are grateful just to be in the class. Well, Mike made that classroom safe for those kids. He made it a place conducive for their learning. And they achieved. He engaged them. They achieved. You have to get out of kids' way when they're engaged. But the social-emotional learning that we need as adults to make that space safe for the kind of risk-taking and engagement that leads to achievement, that's so important. I would say that 
when I moved from the classroom to leadership positions, principal level and district level, I think the language of engagement changes. And that, and that I think what Mike said, you're really talking about, you know, the language that occurs at the teaching level and, and a lot of times between teachers and sometimes between teachers and their supervisors. And I think the language from a district level in regards to engagement and um, you know how powerful it is for uh, improvement, instructional improvement is what are the results? Because that's what people always are ultimately focusing on, right? What are the metrics? And so, from a district level, you know, the way that I would frame it would always be, you know, if our students are engaged, they're attending school. So, right? So you know, student attendance is, is a big issue. It's one of the things that are being measured. It's one of the metrics that's being measured more closely by the state now, right? So if they're engaged, they're in school. If they're engaged, and to Mike's point about social emotional learning, their behavior is improved overall as individuals and as a collective, right? And so they're engaging with each other in more appropriate ways. Uh, they're engaging with each other in supportive ways, um, and that's important. And then I think finally, you know, the one that typically drives most people, which is the assessment results. And, you know, I, and I would always go back to, you know, my feeling from a teaching perspective, but I would, you know, I would be framing this from a, a district level or a building level perspective as well is, you know, engaged students are going to perform better on those standardized assessments that we are measured on. So, you know, there's a lot of payback for engagement. If, if you're the type of person who needs metrics to, to, to drive you and to, you know, be the catalyst for the work that you do, there's that. Now, Mike described the people who that don't necessarily need that external push, they're internally driven. Right, but but not everybody is the same. In you know, not every teacher is the same. We're not all driven, and not every person is the same. We're not all driven by the by the same, um, you know, particular goals. So, and we're we're wired differently, and so we have to we have to frame this in different ways. But in the end, engagement ultimately, whether it's it, it, whether it's internally satisfying to you as a as a professional and as an educator. And as a person, or you're externally driven um, by the metrics. Either way, you can make a case for both, and they're and both cases are very powerful and compelling cases. And and so I would make both cases. Well said. They're not mutually exclusive of each other. They're right. Yeah. Yeah. So, what can administrators do to support and encourage? teachers' efforts to explicitly focus their instruction on engagement? You know, I, I, I find that uh, I was most ready to listen um, when I felt I was missing the mark, either because there was evidence staring me in the face or, or I had a, sort of a message from my limbic system at a gut level telling me this is not going well. Um, you know, once I got through the initial negative feelings about that, I, that's when I was most ready to listen. There was a sense of urgency that something needed to change. And I think it's our job as instructional coaches and leaders to, to stand with and shoulder to shoulder with our teachers when they're encountering that struggle and to lean in with them, to take a look at their instructional design and to introduce or rely upon those established principles of engaging instructional design. Can you articulate in a clear statement the learning you are after? Do you, can you, are you able to articulate in clear statements criteria that lead incrementally towards mastery of, of that content or that skill? I think when we start to share the language and use the language together, that helps create engaging instructional design. That's, that's when achievement starts to find the traction it needs. 
and and you know then it's then it's about refinement mike what would be some of the language what would be some of the the terminology that you would use consistently you know before when you were talking a little bit about the different orientations people have when we come to the work of education and and there are several and that's so that's such an important point um for somebody who might you know as you termed intrinsically motivated motivated somebody who's more extrinsically motivated i think whatever the measures are of achievement and learning uh, let's all agree about what is important about what we're assessing and once we understand its importance what is its relevance to the life of the learner and how do we help that learner understand its relevance so we establish those things right in the beginning um, sometimes we don't know relevance as learners because we don't know what we don't know. Well, then what's the hook? How do we hook our, our learners on, on what it is we want them to acquire as a skill or content? And we, we want to bait that hook so well. Um, and that's where I think all instructional design needs to begin with the why. Why is this important? Why is it relevant? Um, why is it something you are really going to love knowing how to do or learning about? And once we start there, then we can begin with, okay, what's our first target? And where is our destination? And how does our target line up with that? And how do we see ourselves moving through this? And we come up with our loose plan um, with our destination in mind. And then we, we come backwards and we decide, is this the first learning target then? And once we can confirm that, then we can create our criteria and come up with um, activities and experiences we want our kids to have. Yeah, yeah. I think the the point about common language is really important. Are the, uh, adults need to have common language. The supervisor and the the teachers they need to have common language, common understanding when they're using term like relevance. What does that mean when they're using terms like clarity? What does that mean? challenge what does that mean they really need to work that through and have that common understanding and then they need to be able to translate that to the students so that there is this consistency all the way through that alignment of language so to speak i think the other thing that supervisors can do which is less technical but and i tend to <laughs> i tend to focus th on things in a less technical manner a lot of times but um you know is basically encourage risk-taking. I, I think that's so important. We are so, in public education especially, educators, we are so afraid to fail. <laughs> we just think that if we fail, that we will somehow have done an incredible disservice to our students and that they will ultimately fail because we failed at a lesson, for example. And I think we have, to, we have to make it clear that failure is the way to success and risk-taking is incredibly important. And as long as it was thoughtfully laid out and you know, it's not life-threatening, which you know, typically it's not going to be, take a shot at something and see how it's going to work. You may not be the expert at it, but you're going to learn through the process and, and the, the students will benefit from it even though it wasn't perfect they'll benefit from it and you can circle and you always have time to circle back and fill in the gaps and you know massage the areas where maybe it could have been a little bit better but i think we just have to we have to give our teachers the the support to take risks and i, I because i this we are, it, it is a this is a risk averse business so to speak education people are averse to taking risks they're going to take the safe path most of the time because they don't feel that they will have the support if they try something that's a little bit off the beaten path yeah i fortunately started out for the first four years of my life being the only social studies teacher in in the middle school and I had four different superintendents and there was, and, and the superintendent was supposed to be the principal. So over those four years, we, I, we essentially had no principal. So it was sink or swim. And so I became self-reliant and I 
just said, I'm going to take risks. And I worked with, I collaborated with some colleagues and we took some risks together. And you know what? We screwed some things up, I'm sure, along the way. They didn't come out exactly the way we would have liked them to. But I don't think we hurt any kids either. <laughs> and in fact, I think the kids benefited greatly from our attempts to try to be creative and innovative in what we were doing. We maybe we maybe we weren't so great with aligning all of you know everything from objective to assessment perfectly. But I think you know we had the right idea, and we were trying things that that ultimately helped kids to be engaged with the with the content that we were trying and the skills we were trying to teach. So. You know what? I took that forward to, with me throughout my career and said, go ahead, give it a shot. It's okay. And I'll be there to support you if it doesn't work. If somebody complains, I'll be there to support you and say, I support this and here's why. You know, I would say that what you did with that luxury of freedom you enjoyed in the first four years of your career when you became an administrator is a benchmark of your success as a, an educational leader. You know, there are teachers who would listen to this podcast and say, if I felt I had that kind of support, I'd take that risk. And with the advent of, you know, the last decade and the changes to APPR and the impacts of all of that, there are real reasons why teachers do not feel supported, <laughs> while why they play the instructional cards so close to the vest, um, and 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 so risk taking goes out the window. The curriculum gets narrowed. Um, there are a whole host of unintended and undesirable outcomes as a result of that. And so back to your question, Jerome. I think as administrators, we have to do precisely what Mike just said. We can't not tell the truth if the truth is needed in a moment, but we also need to honor the importance of failure in learning. And we need to make it safe for our people to fail and to support them through their failure in the right ways. It doesn't always come in the form of us as administrative savior coming in and fixing a problem. It's more often collaborative, colleague to colleague and reflective um, but that message of, I hired you because I trust in your capability. I trust in your judgment. I trust you. That's why we hired you. And I'm going to trust you to learn from the failure. It's okay. You are going to be better for it. I've already watched that happen in your practice. Let me show you an example. I, I, and, yeah, I, yeah. I, mean, I think the key point that you made there, Mike, for me, was trusting is communicating that you trust in their failure that they're going to learn from that and and you know I, I know that as a superintendent i changed the whole hiring process so that i was there at the end asking that kind of question and and also uh, also saying to the candidates if i hire you i'm going to trust you to take risks and fail and learn from them and be better because that's what i expect and that's, that's the culture I'm trying to, to develop here. And, you know, I, I, that goes all the way back to, and, you know, Jerome knows that this is, you know, one of my favorite terms, intentionality, you know, is just being intentional about what you're trying to, to do and, you know, what you're trying to accomplish culturally in an organization, I think from, you know, from a, a district level perspective, but in your building as well from a principal level perspective or assistant principal level perspective. What are you trying to accomplish culturally? Do you want your teachers to ultimately take risks so that they can be more engaging and create more engaging uh, tasks and lessons and experiences for their kids? Right? Because you're right. The, the, the external message they're getting, and sometimes we reinforce it inadvertently by putting up on the big screen for the board to look at our test scores. Mm -hmm. The message is, it's all about the test scores. In fact, I remember the, towards the end, the last couple of years of my superintendency, I convinced the board that we were no longer going to put state assessment scores as a part of our goals and targets for, this, for the district. Mm. That they were no longer relevant, that they were, it was apples to oranges from year to year anyway, 
what was the point? What we really want is we really want to measure things that we think are really important. And that, and that those tests didn't measure that. And my board bought it in the end because I convinced them to buy it. But, you know, it was, I was inadvertently reinforcing what I was fighting, what I was talking, I was like talking out of both sides of my mouth and didn't even realize it by, by doing these public presentations of state assessment scores and putting so much emphasis on that. And then I could, and I started hearing people because people respected me. So they didn't want to tell me this, but I started hearing it from people who trusted that I wasn't going to get mad. I was going to be reflective on it. And I was like, you know what? You're right. This is, this is ridiculous. And so we, we went in a different direction, but you know, unfortunately um, we don't always recognize that that's what we're doing. Well, you know, you talk about education being risk averse and um, talk about state assessments. Um, you know, yeah. those public results are, you know, maybe primary drivers of some of that, you know, risk aversion. Um, but, you know, could you guys maybe finally talk a little bit about how an explicit focus on engagement can fit into the school improvement process, which, you know, deals heavily in, in these state assessments and other accountability metrics? You know, working with schools who uh, are identified as in need of improvement, um, you know, these are schools where, you know, this probably isn't the first year that that school has appeared on a list like that, um, that it, the people who make up and comprise the staffs in those buildings um, have endured underperformance year after year and have toiled laboriously to uh, improve in achievement among their kids. My experience is they love their kids. They believe in their kids. Um, and we work on things like, you know, if, if these scores are legitimate indicators of the kind of achievement we want for our kids, then let's identify first as educators, why do we want these kinds of achievement for our kids? How is this relevant to the lives they're leading and the lives they'd like to lead? How can we be transparent in our motives for wanting to improve achievement so that we can bring our kids into that conversation and that we can ground it in humane things like personal growth and aspirations for a life that is full of the kinds of things and fed by the kinds of dreams you're having right now. So, you know, if we're going to say to kids, hey, uh, we're gonna spend the next five weeks really working on developing a claim statement, taking a side on an issue, articulating it in a claim statement, and then pulling evidence from texts to support that claim statement. Before I should expect any kind of engagement, I should understand first the default is probably disengagement. I have to be ready to answer in as many possible modes and ways why that kind of thinking is important, why they currently value it, and why they'll value it and the skills they'll develop around it even more so with each year they live. I have to be transparent and clear before I can expect to be able to put in place the building blocks of real engagement and hard work around those tasks. And I, I you know, I, there are lots of good ideas about how you do this as a department, as a building, um, where you're, you're using some information that is data, it's performance data, and it's coming from a standardized assessment. And you're thinking about ways where you can share this information in kid-friendly language, depending on where you're at developmentally. It isn't the be-all and the end-all. It's just an indicator, no different than the indicators that populate the perimeter of your video game screen. So the, the DITS, the Diagnostic Tool for School and District Effectiveness, you know, when I, when I take a look at the tenants and I, and I take a look at you know, some of the, the key ideas uh, within those tenants, I think that it's a, it really actually is a, a pretty nice guideline for any school district, whether you're a school that's been identified in need of improvement 
uh, or any or a school not. I think that there there's really good guidelines here for engagement um, throughout the tenants. Uh, for example, you know when you look at um, tenant four, for example, teacher practices and decisions. You know it talks about classroom environment and culture and the importance of classroom environment and culture. Um, when you look at tenant five, student social and emotional development health. It talks about safety, you know, how do kids feel safe? And that's all a part of engagement, you know, and there's a variety of other tenants that you could dig down in, in, in their main ideas and dig down into those main ideas and see the connections to engagement. Um, I think that that's, you know, I think it's really important. And to me, I always liked, you know, when, as a, as a systems leader, I always like to be able to say, listen, uh, this is all aligned. So, you know, the consistency of what I'm saying from my level to what you're doing and what the kids are doing at, at your level, it's all aligned to a certain uh, set of ideals or ideas that we are all, you know, buying into. And in the case, in this case, you know, unfortunately, you have to buy into because you're, you, you, your school district has been identified but not unfortunate in the sense that maybe you didn't have that kind of structure to fall back on, such as a mission, vision, goals that you had established that really got at these key indicators that now you have. And you can say, okay, so we're going to align from top to bottom and bottom to top, our conversations, our language, our goals, and engagement is really, I think, a central piece to a lot of these these tenants and their in their key ideas. So, I, I would say that you know, uh, I think the the school improvement process really is is well aligned to the the idea of engagement. That's an excellent point. I'm so glad you brought us back to the six tenets uh, of the DITSTI format because in our conversations we're like. There's nothing left out. It is all captured appropriately here. And it's aligned with research. Yeah. So yeah, all of this fits. It all works together. Well, guys, um, you know, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this. And um, I hope that you know, educators out there find this useful as they think about engaging their students both in remote learning and how they can engage them eventually when they're back in the classroom. Um, I think these principles apply in both settings and the urgency is it for engagement is definitely present in both settings. Thank you guys. Um, and thank you. Thank you, Jerome.